Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson. And thanks again for the feedback on the episode of Nick Whitfield last week. If you haven't heard it already, you can find it in your feed. And I will be writing about some of the themes we discussed, including a pair of journaling in the Future Work Life newsletter over the coming weeks. But talking about newsletters, today's guest has a very successful one of his own, and he's also the host of one of the UK's most popular business podcasts, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Until January 2020, Bruce Daisley was Vice President of Twitter, having previously run YouTube in the UK. Nowadays, he writes about workplace culture in his newsletter, Make Work Better. And as an author, his first book, The Joy of Work, was a bestseller when it was published in 2018. And he's got another one on the way this year. Now, I've wanted to get Bruce on this podcast since I first launched it, so I'm delighted he joined me for a chat a couple of weeks ago. We discussed how businesses respond to the shift to remote work, including why it's here to stay. Bruce also explains why, if we're not careful, some of the things we'll miss from human interaction, including laughter and a sense of relatedness, will negatively impact our work experience. We cover one of the most critical challenges affecting so many businesses right now, the role of the manager, specifically how we balance creating results and outcome-oriented approaches with the compassion and understanding needed to manage a remote workforce. Finally, we discuss the nature of our relationship with time and how that relates to productivity and flexible work. One thing to note, I mentioned Oliver Bertman's brilliant book, 4,000 Weeks, during the show, but I got his surname wrong, so if you're interested in looking it up, which I recommend you do, I've included a link in the show notes. I also wrote my first newsletter of the year about it a couple of weeks ago, so I'll put that in there along with links to Bruce's newsletter, his podcast, and his website. So as ever, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so, and if you're feeling particularly generous, please rate the show too. It does make a big difference. That's enough from me, though. On to my conversation with Bruce Daisley. I started by asking him how the upheaval of the past couple of years has changed the way he thinks about the relationship we have with our work. Yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting one, actually. More than anything, I'm probably one of the the sort of people who doesn't necessarily dwell in certainty. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that I've got the answers on anything, which can make for at least at least persuasive speaker, you know, like when you turn up somewhere and someone's got the answers, my God, it makes them charismatically appealing. It's like, wow, that certainty. It's so absent in my life. And, uh, and, and actually, I think probably the last couple of years has been suited to people who don't have that certainty, who don't necessarily profess to having all the answers because from week to week, the, the outcomes change. And I think, you know, we've, we've gone through different cycles of lockdown overall, I think the the one thing that we've concluded is almost every organization is going to have some degree of flexibility. Um, I'm a sort of, I'm a COVID optimist. I've sort of got a vague belief that we will return to some degree of normalcy by Mm. the middle of this year. Um, And, but I suspect the, the equilibrium that most firms will come to is that there'll be people will be working from home two days a week. That's what I'd guess the balance would be. And then the question becomes, how do firms anchor around that? Interestingly, there's some research out of Stanford uh, last week saying that if bosses go into the office on people's work from home day, uh, most workers are inclined to go in on those days as well. So it seems like in the same way that we always want our parents' approval, to some extent, trying to get your boss's approval is going to be an, in, an important part of this dynamic. So look, workers want to work from home a couple of days a week at least. I suspect that will be prob- probably become the equilibrium for most firms. But I think what we've also established is that it's pretty clear 
that if you want to run an organization that is entirely remote, the chance of success of that is significantly higher than most people might have considered prior to this. So, you know, how you then try and build a sense of team cohesion, a sense of culture is a separate challenge. But I think it's pretty evident now that if organizations want to strip out 10% of their costs and not have an office, that's a pretty conceivable business model for, for most yeah. firms now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the the examples of those businesses which were fully distributed before, you know, the automatics, the GitHubs of this world. I think we can all see there's an example there that remote work can work entirely. But and perhaps this is just reflective of my you know work career, having primarily been office based. I still can't help thinking that we've lost something. And this it comes from somebody who is a massive adherent of remote work. I just believe fundamentally the, the economics of it just demand that we think that this is the right option. But what what have we lost from not being in person with people? And what might we lose? You know, when those when the you're talking about the new equilibrium. Now suspect when we return to normal in you know our day-to-day life, that doesn't mean back to how things were before. So let's assume people only come in for a couple of days a week can we find a way for that to be to work optimally so that we get the benefits of being together but still allow that flexibility of working remotely how, how do we work that 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 challenge out yeah i mean I, someone drew my attention at the end of last year to some uh, a lovely piece of work um by the late um chief rabbi uh, rabbi jonathan Sachs, and he used a phrase that anyone who's read Hebrew or studied the Old Testament will know well. He he talked about this phrase that appears in the Old Testament called Simcha, uh, S-I-M-C-H-A. And, uh, and Simcha is translated when we translate to English as joy. But he says there's a fundamental nuance that's lost when you translate that because Simcha is shared joy. It's not just joy, it's shared joy. You can't have Simcha on your own. And so, you know, he gives examples of when people sing together or dance together or just go and listen to stories together. And we get this shared joy of experience of that. And that largely is a reflection of what team culture, when it works well, embodies that that shared joy of experience. And we do lose that when we go through screens. Look, you know, the most evident thing is that most people might say the last couple of years has been more efficient, but I don't think anyone would say the last couple of years has been more fun. And almost certainly, I I used to love laughter. You know, for me, um, I loved a book last year called Humor Seriously. And Humor Seriously was by these two Stanford um, professors. And, and they talk about how, you know, actually bringing laughter into your everyday isn't necessarily about being funnier. It's about looking for laughter. And I'm strongly mm. of that opinion. I used to love looking for laughter in everything all day. I used to, you know, for me, if, if you said to me at the end of a day, did you have a good day? It was largely based on how much I laughed. And I, you know, and I'd laugh 30 times a day. I used to love it. And I don't think I have in the last two years. So for me, that simha of shared laughter was a really important part of what work provided for me. You know, it's really interesting what we found in the absence of that over the last couple of years is that there's been a real resurgence I think for a couple of reasons a real resurgence of a strong anti-capitalist argument um so you know there's a, a couple of books that come out this big argument come out uh, um really sort of proposing that you know we're in this 
horribly toxic relationship with work where we we shouldn't give any quarter and, and work shouldn't be allowed to intrude into our into our consciousness beyond working and I think it fundamentally makes a mistake about the relationship we have with work you know I, d- I don't think I'm abandoning myself to the capitalist system if I say I want to go into work and enjoy the company of my colleagues and actually feel a degree of fulfillment about doing my job well you know I don't think you're uh, a slave to capitalism if you're a woodworker who takes pride in creating beautiful desks you know I, I, I think it fundamentally misunderstands the, the relationship we have with work but because work has become so joyless in the last two years it's allowed that argument to rise I think so you know for me there is a balance to be struck the interesting thing is that I think I think a forced hybrid model of three days a week in the office is going to be deeply dissatisfying for a lot of people. Hybrid work, to some extent, isn't the best of both worlds, but it's the worst of both worlds. And so that's the interesting one for me, that at the end of this year, will people say, will people resolve, irrespective of their position in the debate, will will they resolve, you know, work's just not as good as it used to be. And I'm not convinced we know how to get back to that. Um, So that's the interesting debate for me. I think we, we... Almost certainly, um, a model of three days a week in the office seems perfectly reasonable right now, but I suspect it won't feel as satisfying as we're expecting it to be. Yeah, I think in my experience so far, many of the businesses that I speak to, and I know you speak to loads of companies about these subjects, it very rarely lands perfectly well with every member of staff because I think everybody's become so accustomed to managing their time and having autonomy over their time, more, more so than they did before, certainly. The, the idea that everybody would go in on exactly the same day, whilst it works from a you know team cohesion point of view, I think it's, in my experience so far, it's not landed very well and has been pushed back from people. And I guess that's going to be hard to reconcile. But as you say, you can't we can't go back to what we had before. So how do we start thinking about what's right for the future? And will it be that we end up with fully remote companies or fully in-person companies? Or will there be some we- balance in between? Exactly. That's exactly the right consideration, because um, if you extrapolate it, if if you sort of plot where we are. So let's work out that. So, number one, people going in on the same day doesn't always prove deeply satisfying for everyone. You know that what we've learned over the last two years is that some degree of autonomy and flexibility is actually really nourishing. It sort of it enables enables us to get the, the hard parts of our job done with a degree of trust. However, not going in on the same days is even worse. Mm. So uh, anyone who went back to the office in the middle of last year, and I spoke to a lot of organizations who did, they said the 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 frustration of sitting in back-to-back video calls at home is one thing. Sitting in back-to-back video calls in the office is even worse. You've, it feels like torture. You've transferred yourself 30 miles across the country. You're sitting in an office, isolated. You don't even have the a, a kitchen next to you to make yourself a cup of tea. You're sitting on back-to-back video calls. There's people around you, but you're not seeing them. But what we've done over the course of the last two years is is up the amount of meetings we've done so exponentially that the, the lived experience of work is really bad. So people, are, I spoke to one huge retailer last year, and they said, look, actually going into the office, we thought was going to be this joyful thing. Uh, two things have changed. Firstly, we don't recognize about a third of our colleagues. You imagine that you're going to go back to this version of work that happened in February 2020. That's gone. 
A lot mm. of those colleagues aren't there anymore. And so, you know, this notion that you're going to wander the floor bumping into people you know is slightly illusory. But yeah. the second part is that um, we, we sort of, we've upped the amount of meetings, the work's changed, the dynamic. So there's the thing, right? Do you plot those two things? So going in on the same day is frustrating for some people. Going in on different days is even worse. The only way mm-hmm. that you can see that ex- exponentially correlating is that the firms who say, you know what, we're just going to get rid of our office. We're going to give everyone access to WeWork. We're going to have a meetup once a week. That's broadly where you get to. Most firms will say it's cheaper and more effective. So it's an interesting one. Are we are we on an inevitable path to go to that? And then the question becomes, should we just go there straight away now? So I, I did work with two companies in the, the last three months who said, look, we've, spl- we've spotted the inevitable trend here. Everyone's going remote only. So why don't we go there now and use it to attract people while we can? Yeah. And so, you know, firm said, look, we know it's going remote only. We want to create a version of that that feels as joyful as our old office culture that we had before. It's inevitable. If we announce it now, we might start attracting all these people who are weighing up how we change jobs and we get ahead of it. Look, it's such a fascinating thing because back to that thing, you know, what I'm doing there is, is giving some degree of certainty into a world that has no realm mm. for certainty. And so, you know, even that, which might feel each step of that might feel logically reasoned, even that I couldn't be sure that that's going to be uh, the way that things play out. Now, it's interesting. Like it's like any other choice that you make of your employer. You know, it's based on loads of different considerations, isn't it? And it goes from what's the specifics of the role that I'm going to do. You know, what how am I going to be compensated? But company culture has always been an important thing. It's just now we've got a different variable or different consideration i think going back to that example about those fully distributed teams you know in a pretty much every case i think they all have a meetup and like so i think automatically they, you know qu- quarterly they meet up mm. for four or five days in some plush hotel somewhere get get, get to meet people properly do some you know, do a bit of work do a bit of team building and it seems to work. And frankly, having, I mean, essentially, that's kind of what I've done. You know, that's been my experience of work over the past couple of years, kind of, you know, deep, dipping into sort of intense periods of you know, engagement with colleagues or, or clients. And actually, I think it works pretty well. So I can, I can see it. But like you say, it would be difficult to predict with certainty that's what's going to happen. And of course, then we get into the consideration about what stage of career you're at, because it sounds fine to me and probably sounds fine to you. But if you're 22 years old and you're still learning on the job, do you want to be around people all day? What are the channels of communication that help you learn on the job? And I don't think we've solved that part yet. Precisely that, you know, at the stage when you're trying to develop and expand, then being in the office every day has got some advantages to it, especially if you're in a house share, a flat share. You know, I've I've spoken to you know, two or three, four sets of different people who've told me, look, you know, the only place we can work in our house is in the kitchen. Mm. It means that I can't do video calls at the same time as my housemate. And unfortunately my boss won't, uh, my boss won't understand that. So, you know, like the challenge of trying to get work done when you're in a really confined shared space is obviously a reality for the last two years for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to um, a point you made earlier on about people going into the office the same day as their bosses. And I mean, again, we probably, that won't come as a great surprise. There was an article in The Economist actually this week talking about the performative aspect of work has not changed over the past couple of years. If anything, it's become worse. You know, that green light that appears on your Slack or mm. your Teams, you never want that to go off. And, yeah. you know, if you open up for comments on a shared doc, 
everybody comments because you've got to be looking chipping in but all you're doing there is adding more noise and more clutter to something which doesn't necessarily want to be there I'm interested in the role of managers because we probably recognize that that's changed in many cases you know that the overseer in the office yeah you don't really need that anymore and it's more about you know maybe coaching facilitating work but by definition that requires different skills do you think that that role of managers has been diminished? Do you think it's just changed? Yeah, but I think this is um, a huge problem for a lot of organisations now, that the role of the manager has fundamentally changed. The role of the manager increasingly now is going to be trusting to create very clear objectives for someone and measure them versus them. Now, the challenge of that is that because we've used a simple metric which was you know FaceTime or the amount of time people were working we innately feel frustrated when people aren't necessarily working the way that we want them to work there was an organization a few years ago that sort of represents a good test of this so the the American equivalent of PC World P, Dick, uh, carries PC World is a company called Best Buy if you've been to the US you've probably seen them big white goods manufacturer um, retailer And about 10 years ago, they introduced something called the results-only work environment. Now, the results-only work environment was very focused. It's sort of this evolved version of work that we're sort of heading towards now, that your your job was a series of objectives, and you could get them done in any way you wanted. Now, the next stage of that is, if you truly believe that anyone can get them done in any way they want, then you can't care what time they log on in the morning, and you can't care what time they finish in the evening. Did they get their job done? That's all it is. Now, what they said was that the first thing that they had to deal with when they orientated people towards this way of working is they had to get rid of the um, emotional baggage that we've all got. If If someone's green light doesn't come on their email till midday every day, are they doing their job badly or are we just locked into the model? So, for example, in Best Buy, One person bought themselves a camper van and traveled across the U.S. working while they were following their favorite band. Another person moved to California, surfed every day till 2 p.m., then did all their work between 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. Another person did a college degree and did all their work in the evening. So fully asynchronous work. These people got their jobs done. But of course, it doesn't necessarily meet our model. It doesn't pass the Daily Mail test. The Daily Mail test would scream that this is an appalling abuse by woke slackers. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the challenge is, are we wedded to the old way we worked or are there some norms that we, we want to uphold? The biggest challenge for most organizations to switch to that would be that we've got such a volume of video calls that you've got to work synchronously. You've, you've got to, you know, you're spending 20 hours a week staring into your webcam. But organizations that can strip themselves from that are going to be more appealing. They're just The question is, does that have a downside on productivity? Are firms going to be less effective if they allow workers to work in a sort of more flexible way to, to the point that they're, they're working whenever they want? I don't know. I fully, I fully don't know the answers on that. I always think to myself, though, you know, in the old days when we'd go into a coffee shop, a Starbucks, you'd venture into the city centre somewhere and you'd see people with headphones on and a laptop and they were working away and you're... You know, you're, you're the mill owner inside you, the sort of the, the brutalist, capitalist brutalist inside you would say, how are these people working? What are they getting done? And of course, you know, generally these people were earning their living from working this way. So I think we've got to sort of divorce ourselves from some of the 
elements of control that probably we've we had running through the way we worked. I'm really interested in this from the from manager's point of view because I'm trying to extrapolate the situation that you outlined, and I, I typically think an outcome-led approach to work is pretty good. You know, here's what we expect of you: deliver it in any way you wish. But again, let's go back to people early in their career. The reality is, and I've, I've done this by the way. I used, after reading Cal Newport's Deep Work, I went back into my last business on a mission and said, "Yeah, this is." We all need to do deep, deep work. And actually, let's do two hours in the morning where we blank it out. You can do whatever you want. Just deliver what we ask of you. But of course, what I got back from most of the uh, younger people in the team was, I don't really know how to do that. You know, well, you've had 20 you've had 20 years, 15, whatever many years of your career to work out how to work well. And actually, I think there's a part of work, particularly early in your career, which it isn't just learning technical skills or communication skills. It's frankly skills about how to work very well. And I think that's why I like the coaching part of the new manager's job, because there's a large part of the role which requires coaching people about how to get the best work out of themselves. And I do mm. fear, I do fear if you go completely to results orientated without the right structure around it, you're hanging people out to dry. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. There was an FT article in the middle of last year, maybe the start of last year, talking about how when young workers joining the workforce join their first instinct is to think this is insane. This <laughs> like this volume of back-to-back uh, meetings, the number of emails we've got, the hierarchy, the fact that decisions are so um, are delegated upwards so that young people who've spent 10 years of education, 15 years of education, believing that you know they were going to have agency and they're going to have the opportunity to do things now that enter a workforce and realize i'm not going to make another decision for a decade and so you know they're, they're baffled by the slow moving rigors of work and so to some extent you know maybe we've just brought people into a, a work a, a world of working that doesn't make sense and new organizations will find a better way of doing it um mm. I don't know, you know, I have to believe that there is going to be an acceleration in this, the Darwinian effect that companies that have just got layers of hierarchy, that have got bureaucracy, are going to find that it's just, it gives them such a strong gravitational pull and they're going to struggle to survive it. So, you know, when I chatted, I chatted to one marketing organization last year and a, a leader there said, told me he spends over 45 hours a week in video calls. Now, I can't imagine what the output of that is so that Mm. must mean they've got so many lines of codependency so many communication links that just need to be upheld that people are just spending their their whole time linking up with each other and so then the question becomes either can you reduce those lines of codependency or what would happen if people didn't communicate with each other each other on a weekly basis could you change the basis of that i've one of the, my favorite things I read last year was a, a memoir by a couple of early workers at Amazon called Working Backwards. And one of the things they said in that, and it's just, it, it's lovely to see it because it feels countercultural to the way that a lot of us have worked the last two years. And so I, I always love seeing things that feel heretical in their time. And they said that Jeff Bezos um, was so anti-communication. He wanted to work out how teams could communicate with each other by API. And what could he do to reduce the communication codependencies so that you could make a decision without worrying, have I socialized this to the Manchester office? Have I communicated what this means to HR? Have I communi- And, you know, I, I worked closely with someone in the last 12 months 
who made a decision of something that they wanted to do and then spent three months communicating it around the organization. And effectively, uh, two people in those 60 meetings of communication, two people said, I don't want you to do it. The project died. It was like three months work killed because those lines of communication. Now, to some extent, that version of what Bezos said in the outset wouldn't need to worry about that. You know, you're creating the Kindle Fire. Don't worry about what the website says. Don't worry about it. Just get on with it. I'm so fascinated whether uh, we can try and make smaller teams with more autonomy that have less codependencies. And as a consequence of that, you don't need to communicate as much. Anyone who's worked in a small company will tell you the delight of not having to have hours and hours of meetings is so liberating. It's so um, energizing to the people doing it that people are like, I love this. They often end up working uh, with more passion because they're, they're not anchored down to all these meetings, I think. Yeah. I mean, this meeting thing, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's how many, you can, you can talk about it so much. Everyone believes there's a problem with meetings, but we still can't collectively do I anything about it. But I, um, I think I always think the best way, and I have written an article, which I will plug now, which I will uh, link to in the uh, show notes, but about reinventing meetings. And I do think the most effective way within big companies would be to put a calculation of the cost of that meeting based on everyone's hourly mm. rate into a little counter in the corner so you could see it ticking up. So I bet it wouldn't take much. It wouldn't take very long before people start rethinking it. I think I listened to a, it was a, maybe a podcast of yours with Aaron Digden, where he was talking about yeah. he went into a company whose culture was exactly as you just described. Meetings, meetings, meetings. I mean, it was so many hours of meetings that it was longer than my average working week. In fact, I think what he said was, he scrapped them entirely and everyone was obviously in up, you know, arms up in the air, couldn't believe it. But actually, once you start putting the essential ones back in, it's only then that you see which really are necessary. Exactly. It was the equivalent of intention paths. You know, that idea that, you know, you've just built a new building. You don't know where people are going to walk across a big lawn in front of it. So you lay the lawn, you see what paths become worn, and then you and then you tarmac those parts of the path. It was the equivalent of that. So he said, cancel all the meetings. He said they were spending the equivalent of more of more than a full working week in meetings every week. And he said they cancelled all of them. And then all of a sudden, three weeks in, people are like, if we don't have this meeting now, we can't hire any new people. Right, right. So let's yeah. put that recruitment meeting back in. And it was sort of like the equivalent of intention paths across the mm. lawn. Whether it worked or not, I don't know. He told a good story <laughs> on it. Whether it worked yeah. or not, I don't know. <laughs> I, can I just, uh, I'm sort of jumping topic a little bit, actually, but I'm just reminding myself of a podcast I listened to. One of the best books I read last year was Oliver Burke's book, which, and he was on your podcast Brilliant. towards the end of last year, wasn't he? Yeah. 4,000 weeks. In fact, I was just writing, yeah. just before we spoke, I was, write, I was writing about it because I think it's, it's, I think about, I've obsessed with time and time management. I think when you've got three young kids particularly it's puts a lot of pressure on trying just trying to find some time you know to my wife and I to actually you know get something constructive done sometimes a challenge so I'm obsessed about time but for me it's, it's always been thinking about the future I don't know if you maybe could summarize the conversation that you had with him but I would recommend this book to anybody frankly it's just a brilliant read but just recon, you know, recontextualizing our relationship with time yeah I think you know the fundamental thing that he goes through in the book and it's sort of um uh, you know, it, it, the book's part philosophy, part productivity, 
It's a beautiful read. In fact, I would strongly recommend the audio book of it um, because he reads it himself and he's got a, a lovely posh voice. Mm. But um, the uh, it, it, basically, it's, he says, you know, he, he was one of those people who was obsessed with productivity hacks. He was obsessed with trying to eke out another 5%, 10% who so was getting things done. And he said, to some extent, you, you become embarrassed about productivity hacks. Like, how how can you get more out of your time? But he said, philosophically, there's probably no more important question. What are you going to spend your time with? You know, what you want to accomplish with the the finite time you've got. And, you know, the book is a brilliant uh, trick because, you know, in, in some ways it gives you, uh, this is a man who was obsessed with product, productivity hacks. It gives you probably the three or four most effective productivity hacks. <laughs> And some of which are related to what you said before, get your most important thing done first, you know, um, commit time to things that are important. So he goes through those, but also in a beautiful lyrical way, he takes you on a journey that just invites you to think about what the most important things in your life are and what you're doing today to, to pay respect to those things and how you seek to determine what the most important things in your life are. Because if you're not giving them any time today, the suggestion would be if, you, if you're not giving time to the things you think are important, they're probably not that important. And so maybe you need to reprioritize. I haven't done it any justice there at all. I've, I've listened to oh, it no. twice and read it once, but um, very yeah. enjoyable book. And, and uh, you know, if he's sort of, I mean, it's like become a, a colossal bestseller based on that, based on yeah. the insight he's had, I think. I think you did a good job of summarising. I suppose it's. I think my reflections on productivity generally, and I think it's partly as someone who's been a manager and who's then sort of stepped away from company culture and then come back into it. Um, productivity for yourself is only as good as what's allowed by your manager. So if you've got a manager and you, you might have the best ideas in the world about how you want to manage your time, but if you aren't an empowered to do that or unable to do that, frankly. You know, it, it, it means nothing. And I think this is, it's almost this enlightenment which is required by businesses to what's important. And it all feeds back into, you know, the, the point you made results only work environment. Well, mm. that's about delivering results. It's not about time spent mm. on the seat. You know, the idea of performative work, it shouldn't be about, you know, showing that you're busy. It should be showing that you're creating value. Raises a really important question, though, isn't it? Because if you hired someone, say if this is your company, and, you know, so, you know, Ali, you just hired someone new and the and you hired two people, actually. One of them logs on at eight in the morning, finishes at eight in the evening. The other one logs on at 11, finishes at three, but gets <laughs> better results and gets more done. It goes to the heart of, will you say to yourself, which one will you pay more? Which one will you promote? Which one will you try and hire someone else like? Now, so many of the things that we use to make the judgment on that would be misguided. You know, if and we've probably all worked with talented, charismatic people who love going to the pub or talented, charismatic people who don't seem to have the same rigors, the same discipline. And it goes to the question, you know, fundamentally, which is the better person to hire and a lot of us would make the instinct well you know look you've got to be on time you've got to be and it, it, i think it challenges why yeah. we've got those prejudices one thing i'm interested in is data so people analytics and the category is exploding it's becoming more and more important the more and more data being collected about the way we work 
in a sense, it feeds into this argument that it's all about results. So how do we know whether people deliver results? I'm just interested, though, at what point data becomes a problem as well, because can we boil work down to metrics in every case? It's one of those things that, you know, you say to someone, I want you to paint 10 walls today. And then you see the way they've painted the wall and you go, okay, right, change that. I want you to paint 10 walls of high quality. Okay, change that. I want you to paint 10 walls of high quality and be polite to the people that you're surrounded by while you're doing it. And, you know, you add these incremental things each time someone does something that doesn't necessarily work with the the model that we've got. I think, you know, that's the challenge. You asked me the question earlier about how this changes management and it fundamentally changes management because most of management operates on the Peter principle. You know, that idea that you get promoted to the level of your uh, incompetence. So you get promoted to the level of the job that you can't do. I see, you know, you do one job, you can do that, get promoted out of it, you get doing one job. And, uh, but most management just takes someone who could do the job below and promotes them out of it. And as a result, that's really not suited anymore to the way that we're working. The the idea that someone could do a job to promote them out of it. Well, actually, what we need now is someone who can is far more methodical as a manager, who can really sort of plot what we need to accomplish and give someone the flexibility, support and autonomy to get it done, not be prescriptive about the fashion that they do it in. So, you know, look, I want you to accomplish these things. These things are really important to me. Maintain these relationships. Go on and do it. Not, I want you doing this at nine o'clock, this at 10 o'clock, this at 11 o'clock, dial in to see me at 12, rinse and repeat. So it fundamentally changes the nature of, of management, makes it a lot fundamentally different skill. I'm not even sure we've considered how we would train people to do those roles. There was one report last week saying that 75% of the workforce are reflecting on whether they should quit their job. And you only need that degree of mobility, meaning that firms might find themselves all of a sudden seeing 20, 30% of some teams quit all of a sudden. They can't hire back. They're faced with a challenge that do we change the way that we're operating? Do we hire people in a different way? Otherwise, our business is going to be decimated. And I think that's the biggest disruption to the the return to an ep- equilibrium this year. Not necessarily a new variant of the vaccine, but a new variant of of the way that work's changed. So I think, you know, firms probably might be saying that this isn't necessarily something they want to reflect on right now and could find very quickly that forcing people to come in three days a week proves so unpopular that 40% of their team have quit and they need to quickly decide what the plan is. So I think Mm. probably a degree of decision-making or agility is going to be the, the thing that differentiates the success of firms this year. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, look, I mean, I really appreciate your time today. I, I will also put links in the show notes to your podcast, to the newsletter. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. So lovely to chat to you. And that was my conversation with Bruce Daisley. So many interesting insights in there. And I'll no doubt be reflecting on some of the topics in the future Work Life newsletter over the coming weeks. So make sure you subscribe to that and join the thousands of other people receiving my weekly updates. Next week, we've got another great guest, so make sure you tune in. Until then, have a lovely week.